very briefly just give you a history of uh, where the catechism is coming from uh, and the larger standards and place them in historical context because they come almost uh, they come about 80 years after the Heidelberg Catechism and there's uh, some differences in, in, in their approach. You know, when we talk about being Reformed or Presbyterian, uh, really re- referring to the same thing, Presbyterian focuses on the fact that we're ruled by elders Reformed to the fact that the churches were Reformed out of the medieval uh, nightmare that the church had become. And the way that really developed, you know, the Reformation starts with Martin Luther in 1517, and Northern, Northern Europe, German, Scandinavian, you know, those countries uh, kind of grabbed the hold of Lutheranism. It wasn't called Lutheranism back then, but Martin Luther's teachings. But reform teachings come in almost immediately. Uh, they're somewhat distinct from Luther, Lutheran teachings. Starting about 1519, that's only two years after uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, the cathedral door in Wittenberg, uh, you got a guy called Ulrich Zwingli, he is in Zurich, Switzerland, and he begins, you know, re- doing reform stuff. And it, within months, there's folks all over. Zwingli, for example, dies in 1531 in battle. He's a chaplain, and he's killed on the battlefield uh, when some Roman Catholics uh, gathered up an army and tried to destroy uh, the reform movement in Switzerland. Uh, they failed at that, but they did manage to kill him. But by 1531, when he dies, he's replaced by... Henry or Heinrich Bullinger in Zurich, who would outlive, who would come before Calvin and outlive Calvin. Uh, And yet we don't talk about his name as much, but a major reformer. But by that time, there were already other reformers. There were reformers uh, like Martin Bootser was already at Strasbourg. Uh, uh, William Farrell was in Geneva. Calvin was not yet in Geneva. He would arrive some five years later. Calvin, of course, does arrive in Geneva. And uh, the rest so called is history. And from there on, the Reformation really just spreads uh, all throughout uh, Europe. It gets to England, right? We talk about the continent of Europe. I'll just say the continent, and then we'll talk about the, the British Isles. But it gets to England, and England really wrestles with the Reformation. Henry VIII is not really all that interested in religious reform, but he uses this as an opportunity to get what he wants, which is a divorce. Yeah, he <laughs> breaks away from Rome, declares himself the head of the new church, the Church of England. Every king and queen... The queen that just died was the, the, the supreme head of the Church of England, uh, which is, you know, uh, not an accurate statement because only Christ is the head. Something you learn about in the catechism. Um, but, you know, they, they really wrestle in, in England with, um, uh, with whether they want to be reformed or not. And Henry was, you know, really pushing Catholicism and only allowing begrudgingly some reform, just enough to be able to say that he broke away. But there isn't a whole lot going on. Meanwhile, on the continent, uh, let me just leave England aside for a moment, which is where the Westminster Standards are going to come out of. But on the continent, reform continues more or less, you know, uh, through, throughout the next century. Um, uh, Calvin does his thing, dies in 1564. Reformation continues on beyond that, goes into the 1600s. Um, and uh, uh, 1619 is the Canons of Dort, and you have uh, the five points of Calvin developed then, long after his death. But the Heidelberg Catechism was developed in 1563. You can see how early that is, 1563, a, a year before Calvin dies. Uh, he's not directly involved in it. He had developed the Geneva Catechism, which was extremely influential. 
Uh, you can look at the French Catechism. You can look at um, some of the others that came along, and they all really look at the Westminster Catechism, looks back on the Geneva Catechism. It just becomes the grandfather of all these different uh, uh, catechetical instruction. So you, you get the Belgic Confession. Uh, you get the Heidelberg Catechism, all uh, Belgic Confessions, 1548. Um, the Heidelberg in 1563. All these early works, and for the most part, what we call continental reformed. German Reformed, Swiss Reformed, Dutch Reformed, uh, hold on to these, these things. England, as I said, going back now to the 1500s, wrestles. Henry VIII dies in 1547. His younger son, Edward, takes to the throne, Edward VI. Edward is truly interested in reform. He shows a real religious heart, loves the Lord. He has a cousin who also loves the Lord named Lady Jane, Lady Jane Grey, and they really develop, uh, they're very educated. These are very smart kids, uh, young people. Uh, uh, Jane Grey was known as one of the smartest uh, and most educated women in all of Europe at the time. Uh, but the thing with Edward is he's kind of sickly. And so he only reigns from 1547 to 1553 and he dies. During that time, however, the church becomes fully reformed. Develops a reformed confession uh, known as the 42 Articles. You may have heard of the 39 Articles of England, but it was the 42 Articles. Develops a uh, prayer book, uh, very thoroughly reformed. Finally, it looks like it's all going. Uh, and so when he dies, he dies without children. He knows he's dying. He names um, Lady Jane Grey his heir because he doesn't have children. And his two half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, um, are disqualified because uh, according to their own laws, the acts of succession, you know, that's something that everybody's been talking about here recently with, with you know, King Charles III now. Um, the act of succession, uh, Mary was a daughter of Catherine of Aragon, uh, Aragorn, but he divorced her. And by divorcing her, boom, she's no longer qualified. Same thing with Elizabeth and so on. So when he dies, Edward VI dies, Lady Jane Grey steps in to become queen Mary is not happy about it. Mary's quite cruel, uh, and she deposes Jane uh, within nine days and have her, has her executed. Um, so she then becomes uh, the queen, and she is known as, what do you guys know? Do you guys know? What? Bloody Mary. And she spends six years uh, absolutely destroying the Reformed Church and all Protestants and just, you know, uh, devastating uh, everything. And so... Um, it's not like the others that m did have opposition, but for the most part on the continent, you know, once you decided that you were going to go reformed, they, they were doing that. England is going back and forth and back and forth. So Elizabeth takes over um, in 1559. And her whole thing is, uh, you know, and she rules for quite a while, some 30-something years, and her whole thing is we need peace. So she develops what we, today we call the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And she, her words, via media, the middle way. She picks a middle way, which is a, uh, just, if you look at the Episcopal Church, which is the American version of Anglicanism, or you look at the Church of England, you know, it's half Catholic, half Protestant, and they try to just appease everybody. And so a whole bunch of guys were like, okay, whatever, you know, getting a paycheck, I'll do it, you know. But a lot of the folks who didn't, who still want to reform, wanted a pure church, and they became known as Puritans, with which is, of course, greatly misunderstood by our culture and so on, uh, and exaggerated. But that, that was what they wanted. Hey, we don't want this halfway church uh, where we now write the language of the Lord's Supper. So you can read into it uh, transubstantiation, where the bread becomes literally Jesus. You can read that if you want into it. But we won't, 
right, say it. So if you want to say we're not saying it, then, you know, and all that was, you know, just politically aligned in order to give you just what you wanted. Puritans weren't too happy with that. Um, when she dies, in comes our little friend here, James I. James was uh, a very capable ruler, but an authoritarian. And some of you know him because he authorized a translation of the Bible. The King James Version was not authorized by the church, despite all our Baptist friends who go around saying, it's the authorized version. The tyrant authorized it. The very Baptist friends who go around and saying that are the ones who rightly notice that we have an authoritarian government more and more in our country and, and, and rebel against that. This guy was an authoritarian. He hated Presbyterians because he was also king of Scotland, actually before he became king of uh, England. And uh, he hated Presbyterianism. He hated the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the first Bible with verse numbers and with study notes. And in the study notes, it talked about, and the Geneva Bible came out in the 1560s. A revision was made in 1598 or 1599. I don't remember which one. And it was that version that he hated because it talked about the fact that Jesus was the ultimate king and there was no such thing as a divine right of kings. Did not say you couldn't have a king. They were not trying to be Republican. They were not throwing out the monarchs. But they were saying the king must submit to God's word. It literally said that. And the people were reading it and the people were learning it. So he authorized the King James Version, which came out to be a better translation than you know he probably expected. But it accomplished his goal. It had no notes. And it ended up being, you know, surpassing the, or overshadowing the Geneva. That's really what he wanted. Uh, you, you all know, uh, you've watched uh, V, the movie and all that. You know they tried to kill him and uh, tried to get rid of him. Didn't work, all that other stuff, because he was such a tyrant. Uh, in time, his son comes in, and his son, Charles I, is a complete fop. You guys know that word, not flop, fop. Uh, he's a dandy, and he wears little hats and all this. He had a son, so I don't, you know, I'm not saying he was, but he just was all, you know, he was just enjoying the high life of a king, and he just really was, you know, not doing, that actually, and he was just just as authoritarian as his dad, but he had none of the ruling instincts. Um, He pushed the people to the edge. Parliament went to war with him in the English Civil War. Before it did that, they were already a war of words and, and wills, um, they got so fed up that they allied with Scotland, which was still not part of the United Kingdom yet. And they allied with Scotland. And in 1543, Parliament said, we need one church and we need to reform it. The Scottish church, which I didn't even get into, had already been reformed by John Knox. And John Knox uh, had uh, got into what today we call uh, you know, the Church of Scotland. It's a Presbyterian church. So the Scottish folks in 1643 come down, do this thing called the Solemn, uh, Oath, uh, Solemn Covenant and Alliance. They, they form uh, a Solemn League and Covenant, sorry, that they form with uh, England. And the Parliament calls an assembly to meet in Westminster Abbey, where the Queen, by the way, is going to be buried, and where she was coronated and where Charles will be coronated here next, probably next year. So you get the Westminster Assembly meeting in 1643. They developed the confession. What it is that we believe that comes out um, in, in about four years, 1647. Then the next year they, uh, they published the um, uh, Shorter and the Larger Catechism in 1648 as a teaching tool. They also go on and do other things, a directory of public worship and so on and so on. 
Uh, and so now we have all of a sudden, um, you know, England is reformed, thoroughly reformed, uh, except then Charles finally pushes it too much. Civil War starts in 1649. He's beheaded. Uh, first king and only king, as far as we could tell, that has been beheaded. Uh, the English Civil War goes on, Oliver Cromwell, and so on and so on. That you can then read. And uh, people don't like the fact that um, Cromwell turns out to be just as authoritarian, but he's not a king. He acts like one because he's not George Washington. He did not take the, uh, the, the humility lessons that uh, Washington did. And uh, so people, after a while, are sitting there and saying, bring back the monarchy, bring back the monarchy. And so they do. They bring back Charles II, Charles's son. Uh, it's called the Glorious Restoration. And in 1662, they kick out everybody who's reformed, everybody who's a Puritan. It's, it's called the Great Ejection. They're all ejected from uh, their pulpits. They're no longer getting paid. Remember, it's a state church. Um, and that's the end. And when we were with MTW the first time in the UK, I remember, you know, uh, just realizing the Church of England, I mean, the Presbyterians are really viewed as traitors. There's a very, very low view of Presbyterianism there because of that. So the only thing that really comes out of this long period of about 25 years of finally having a Reformed Church is the Westminster Standards. And that is adopted by the Scottish Church, by the Puritans that do remain in England, then they bring that to the Americas. And it actually then spreads, and as um, Don Carson said, it is the most comprehensive uh, confession or doctrinal statement in the entire history of the church. There never has been anything as thorough as that. That's not to knock the, uh, the Belgian confession or any of those, but it just, it's, a, it's about 80 years later, so it, it, it has a whole lot of more maturity in its thought and, and so on, um, and is now the most widely adopted uh, confession in the world. So that's where the Westminster standards are, and the Shorter Catechism becomes the tool by which we can uh, train people, um, children and adults, you know, in the faith. So that is why we're going to be, why we use it, and why we're going to uh, teach it. Uh, so before I move on to talk a little bit about the importance of confessions uh, as a whole and why it's important, any questions about any of that so far, the history? Um, I can't think of one in particular other than to say just about any good church history um, and um, um, any book on the Westminster, can, you can just Google Westminster Standards and almost all of them will have some kind of preface or something. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have anything in particular. There is a, a were you, oh, okay, thought you were going to throw something out. Um, there is a, a, a book that we uh, are, meant, are saying that you could use I don't, by G.I. Williamson. I don't think, though, it gives a history. But um, you could literally go on Wikipedia, probably. In fact, I'm, I'll tell you right now whether you can go on Wikipedia. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I should have brought some, but, you know, literally you can go on to Great Commission Publications, you can go to uh, Westminster, WTS Bookstore, any one of those you can order these thin little, if you know, if you don't want to use the bulletin or your study Bible doesn't have one, you can order them there. I mean, that thin to get all three the standards, 
you know, the confession, larger and shorter catechism, and many of them will have, you know, everything I said here is about three pages worth, so it's not like it's, you need a whole book on that. But yeah, most of them will have that. Uh, Matt? Uh, same about the same time, 1648. Yeah, they get developed. They both come out almost uh, the same time. They did the confession first in 1647. That's their their main goal. And after, and they had different committees working, but they don't publish the uh, catechisms till the next year, 1648. Uh, they both come out at the same time. And again, larger was meant for ministers to instruct uh, the churches. The shorter was meant for children to be instructed by their parents. So that's how that works. There's, there's a, uh, that's a much, much, that's a 20th century, mid-20th, late 20th century innovation. It's a really watered down, it's not that it says anything wrong, but, uh, you know, uh, um, I forget what the very first question is, uh, uh, you know, who is God? Um, I can't remember what was that, but does God have a body? God uh, does not have a body. You know, it's very basic things like that. Um, uh, you, know, you can use it maybe with a three-year-old. The problem is I see it being used, you know, through sixth grade and seventh grade. And really at that point, they should well be into the shorter catechism. So kids are quite capable. If we treat them like, like dummies, they'll stay dummies and become politicians. But um, <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can raise our kids up. So let's talk a little bit about why we do confessions and catechisms. Because if you're coming out of uh, any tradition other than Reformed or Lutheran, uh, um, I don't think there's too many others today that use catechism. Roman Catholic, technically, although it's a doctrine for the priests and for the cardinals and every, uh, you know, I don't think the regular people, except they're very interested laymen, uh, have the Roman Catholic catechism in hand. But yeah, unless you come out of one of those traditions, uh, you might say, you know, this just sounds like something Roman Catholic. It just sounds like, you know, it's just a teaching tool. And like I said, we can use it for anything. Uh, multiplication tables. You don't sit to your, you know, you don't tell your child, just go out into the world and figure out math. You know, that's, just let the Holy Spirit help you. You know, that if I have three of these and three of these, and I multiply, you know, you you help them to learn by by a structure. And so that's all really that this is. So um, why do we do it? There's a number of different reasons why we want to use. And I'm going to talk about confessions. Because when we talk about catechism, we're really just talking about a subset of a confession. A catechism is a, 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 a more limited, but a, it's a basically a confession in question and answer format. So what are some of the gains that you have? So let's think about that. One of the things is, of course, it represents maturity. A confession represents maturity. It is uh, not fly by night. It is centuries of wisdom that are brought to you. Uh, when you're dealing with a confession, uh, and, and look, I, you know, sometimes I have to just be honest. We love our churches, our sister churches. We're thankful that there are many churches uh, that hold to Scripture and say that they follow Christ and so on. But there is a real immaturity in a lot of our sister churches today. You know, you look around Flower Mound and look around Louisville, the DFW area. Perhaps you came out of one of those churches when you came here. I know that sounds awfully arrogant. You might say, well, these Reformed, these Presbyterians, you know. We're not claiming that it's us. But what we are claiming is when you hold on to a confession, there's a certain maturity of thought. This wasn't developed last weekend. I've literally, you know, I've planted churches in the past. And I've coached many church planters, and um, not just all in the PCA. 
And one of the things you see is guys who get together, right? One time we were working with some of these Acts 29 people, which are, are uh, Southern Baptist friends. And I've coached several of them, and they'll get together, and they'll get their church plant, and they'll work out something they're going to put on their website. They'll work it out that weekend. And that's great. You come up with whatever you're going to say on your website that weekend. What do you want when you are coming to a church? Something that three guys got together at best, or even worse, one, just one guy, and he kind of figured this is what the Bible says. You get the limit of where that guy is. Uh, believe it or not, your pastor is, is not the end all of all scriptural knowledge. Wouldn't it be nice to have a fountain of, uh, you know, of, of depth and breadth of, of knowledge and so on? So confessions just represent real maturity, right? Uh, it's just they're simply not flying by night. Um, so that, and that, by the way, means that they stand the test of time. You know that you're getting something that's absolutely rock solid. It's proven, I guess, is the best way of putting it. The second thing that a confession does for you is it helps you to save a whole lot of time because you're not reinventing the wheel, right? Uh, by, by the way, I should have said this at the very beginning because a lot of people, the question is not even one of confession, whether they're valid. A lot of people just have a problem with the idea of doctrine, theology. Oh, that is so dry. That is so useless. I want to be alive in the Spirit, and you know, a lot of the stuff that's said. Uh, Theology is man-made, and it's terrible or whatever. Uh, Everybody does theology. Everybody. You know, you hear people say, no creed but the Bible. That's nonsense. Theology is not Scripture. Oh, what? Did you just say so? Theology is not Scripture. Theology is man-made. Theology is your interpretation of what the Scripture means. So if I ask you, who is Jesus? Do you find anywhere in here the words, in fact, a catechism? Do you find who is Jesus, question, and answer in the Bible? No. But you can read the Bible and you can answer that question, right? The minute that you answer that basic question, right? Your unbelieving friend asks you at work, who is Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? The minute you've answered that, guess what you've done? <gasps> Theology. You're a theologian. Everybody does it. So, um, so your neighbor asks you, who is Jesus? And you answer him, right? Then your coworker asks you, who is Jesus? And you answer her. And then your child is growing up and, why, Dad, why do we go to church? Mom, why do we go to church? Who is this Jesus? And you answer him or her. After a while, you're like, oh, I get tired of saying the same thing again. Maybe I'll write it down. And the minute you write it down, guess what you've done? You've made, you've written a confession. You see? So what a confession does is it helps you from having to reinvent the wheel all the time. Why should you start from scratch? As a believer, why should this church start from scratch and just say, let's, let's figure out everything that the Bible says right now? It's been done for us. It doesn't mean it's the end all. But why spend all that time, you know, your life span is limited, why spend all that time developing a theology for things that are already done? Like, you don't have to figure out that God is a trinity. They had to really think about it in the uh, uh, fourth cent- third century and fourth century. Uh, many of the guys said, yes, he absolutely is. And some were saying, well, we're not exactly sure of what that means. Was Jesus human and divine? Partially divine? 
mostly divine? A conflation of divine and human? Let's think about that. And they did. And they came out with some really, really good answers. Biblical answers. You don't have to do that. You can read it. You can learn it. You can ask why, but you don't have to, do, you don't have to spend 40 years developing it in your life. Does that make sense? So confessions are really good in that respect. They save you a whole lot of time. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, it just gives you the ability to just jump right to uh, a, you know, a, a mature starting point. Other advantage that you get from confessions is it gives you a, a, a non-threatening way of expressing your beliefs to others in a sort of non-prejudicial, non-threatening sort of way, both to unbelievers here's what we believe, and also to believers in other traditions. When we were planting uh, our first church in um, uh, Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, we were holding this very early on. We only had maybe about 40 people at that time, but we were holding an informational meeting in the house of one of the elders. And um, uh, just bringing in people, there was a a CMA, Christian Missionary Alliance Church, that had had some kind of split or whatever, and we had something like 30 people from that church come to this informational meeting. In fact, we pretty much held a meeting for their benefit because they wanted to know, you know, who is this church and so on. And one of the guys who was a leader, I don't know if they call them elders or whatever it was, in the CMA church was there. He was very interested, asked a lot of questions and so on. So we went through and we talked about who we are and what we believe and you know, where we were headed and what we planned for the church and all this kind of stuff. And at the end, cookies and refreshments and all this. And he came to me in the kitchen, and he was like, you know, he was really just very direct. And, are you trying to tell me that, be- that because, you know, I don't believe in infant baptism, I cannot be a leader in this church? So I could have said, yeah, that's, my view is that you do not belong as a leader because you don't hold to my views. It becomes a contest of me versus him. I was able to sit there and say, hey, look, I'm being sent by Mission to North America to plant this kind of church with these kind of views that are expressed in these documents. You see how it kind of takes the onus off of me? Not that I was trying to say that, hey, I don't believe this stuff or anything, but it it gives you some cover, if you will, in that regard. When you're talking to your friend, it's not just whatever you believe. And that's something that today's modern culture has tried to do is to tell you that your belief is just something private in your head. No, no, this is a universal, worldwide view it's been written. It's been held through the centuries. I didn't make it up last weekend. Our friends didn't get together and come up with the church and throw it up on our website. This is a full, mature view. This is what the church believes, and you can present it that way. It's non-prejudicial. It's non-threatening. I'm going to just throw out a few other things. Um, holding to a confession helps to prevent, protects, maybe even the better word, protects the church against... Um, uh, idiosyncrasies, against personalities, against movements, right? If you can look, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know the church has gone through different stages, you know, different movements. We went um, um, through the church growth movement, late 70s through the 80s and the 90s, and Willow Creek and all this, and, you know, that became the norm. And uh, there was a charismatic movement in the 60s and 70s. All evangelicals were, you know, strumming their guitar and getting away from hymns and playing kumbaya and, you know, Keith Green and, and holding hands and, you know, whatever. Uh, then then uh, the, the 2000s, we had the emerging church movement, you know, and get back to being in a cave and uh, all this other stuff, and the catacombs and all this kind of thing. 
They got cata, they didn't get kism, they got combs, and it didn't make a difference. So this will settle you down. This will really settle you down. And it'll just be steady. You know, you can find a person who's been holding to the Westminster Standards since the 1640s. You can find him in the 1740s. You can find him in the 1840s. You can find him in the 1940s. Not quite there yet, but the 2040s, the 2020s. And we all believe the same thing. We all hold to the same things. It protects you against these constant waves. Right? You see that? Okay, we're almost out of time, so I'll just mention uh, one more it also challenges you individually with whatever wrong notions you come up with. Uh, and what, what? Yet we all can look at scripture and we just haven't figured it all out. And when it's just you and me, you know, you, not you and me, but when it's just you, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit, right? I'm gonna tell you right now, you're gonna, you're gonna go off on some trail that you shouldn't be on. Uh, that's why Ephesians 4 says he gave some to be pastors and teachers. Uh, he being Christ, as a gift to the church. We need them. And in this case, we have pastors and teachers who have written this stuff down with a mature, full teaching that then uh, lesser, much lesser pastors and teachers like me can come along and just make sure that you know you understand and that kind of thing. So it helps to correct you. It helps to keep you in check. It helps to teach you and to keep you from going off the rails. So putting all that together, what do you get? You end up with a summary of what the Bible teaches. It's not the Bible. It's not inspired. It can be changed. It can be corrected. It's not perfect, but it's a summary. It's not the fullness of everything that can be said on any particular topic, but it summarizes what the scripture in the main teaches, and it helps you then to uh, um, uh, have centuries of proven wisdom uh, right at your fingertips, whether it's, again, a confession or whether it's a catechism, uh, that kind of thing. It promotes unity. I know a lot of people say, no, doctrine divides. Doctrine does divide. Confessions do divide in that it, those who hold to it and those who don't. And that's an important thing. You are not part of the world. Jesus made clear that because of what you believe and who you are, everybody has a confession. They just haven't written it down. Your neighbors all believe something about who God is and so on. This will divide, but it also unites because we can all sit there and say, I believe this, I believe that. We all believe this, we all believe that and it brings us together. So it gives you those tools, maturity. It keeps you from just any kind of you know, bobbing around like a cork uh, you know, on the sea and it just helps you develop some maturity. So um, I'm gonna stop there because we're already at 10.05. So we're uh, minutes past. But any questions about that? That's why it matters to do a catechism. And what we're going to do is every week we'll take up a question or two uh, and kind of work through that. And um, no, I'm not going to embarrass you and say, you know, what's question number four and ask you the question, expect your answer. But would it really help to try to learn it? Yeah, yeah, let's try to do that. And uh, just work that one week on, you know, even if you just walk away saying I'm familiar with it, that'll be a whole lot better than not. Marla. Uh, so, yeah, any, any reformed Presbyterian church. Uh, the Reformed Baptists um, altered the confession. They call it the London Confession of Faith instead of the Westminster. And uh, they altered those sections about baptism that they don't like. <laughs> and 
those kind of things. So they changed a few chapters here and there. Uh, for the most part, uh, it's there. At one time, you know, Baptists were all Reformed. They all came out of the Reformed Church. They just never got covenant theology, and they didn't get uh, uh, baptism. But they were pretty Reformed, and then ever since the Second Great Awakening here, they uh, they kind of lost all that, and it became everybody in his own individual thought. There's a push to return to that, Reformed Baptists. Uh, and so, yeah, they kind of hold to that modified confession. No, no, they are their own thing. And I, you know, and I can talk about that some other time. Um, there's, there's some Reformed Baptists who would rather still come to churches like ours because they've become rather legalistic. It seems to be a, just a Baptist thing. Can't just shake that. Uh, not all. Uh, some, there are some really good Reformed Baptists, you know, out there. But uh, anyway, so, uh, but PCA, OPC, RPCNA, Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, which is a small denomination that came out of the Scottish Covenanters. Anglicans? No. No, the Anglicans, that's Church of England. And they don't follow anything, quite literally. No, I'm, I'm not joking. They hold to something called the 39 Articles. They took Edward's 42 Articles. They pared it down. They softened it to the 39 Articles. It's still not terrible, but they have I made mean, centuries since they, they put it on a shelf. Our... Our, our, our denomination of which we ultimately broke away from, the PCUSA, the mainline, when there was only one Presbyterian church, technically holds to the Westminster Standards. They also put it in a shelf in a thing now called Book of Confessions. It's listed with all these others, and it, nobody holds Because you can't hold to that and hold to a Methodist or hold to a Lutheran. they just all listed there for reference. They're actually working on a new confession. That's, that's, um, they put a committee together to woke confession that will actually become a real abiding, and that'll be good because they'll finally have something that states who they are. You know, we're queer, we're this, we're that, and it'll just say it, and at least you know now where they stand. But yeah, all your conservative, we call them NAPARC, North American Presbyterian Reformed Churches. Uh, all those hold to the Westminster Standards with the exception of those who come out of the Dutch Reformed. They hold to the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, which really say the same things. They were just written at different times. The others, you have to kind of look at three different documents to put together because they were not meant to be put all together. The Belgian Confession was not meant to go with the Heidelberg Catechism. They were adopted much later. They were 20 years apart. And then the, the five canons of, uh, the canons of Dort, which are the five points of common, was developed in 1619, much later. And so they put them all together in the Reformed churches. I'm not saying you can't learn your doctrine there, and they're, they're really great. And anybody who knows the Heidelberg Catechism knows it's wonderful. But the Westminster had the advantage of being all developed at once to complement one another. They go hand in hand. So, good. Uh, Timothy, I know we're out of time. Say again? I answered it. Okay, any other last burning questions about any of this stuff? All right. Uh, yes? That is that question. God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. That's right. So that's the kids' catechism. I think you can use that with three-year-olds. That works well. Certainly by the time that they're five or six, and certainly in school, they could start on the shorter catechism. And it's like everything else. You know, they don't have to understand the profundity of it. Just get it in their minds. Uh, just like I can sing songs that I learned, you know, as a little boy, uh, you know, in the church and so on. They'll remember this forever. So... All right, let me go ahead and pray. We'll go ahead and next week bring your catechisms if you want. Of course, we can just use the one in the hymnal. 
and we'll get started with question number one. So I want you to ask you to go ahead and read one and two together and, uh, and start working those into your minds for next week. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly in your word. It's true that there are parts of your word that are more difficult to understand that have a profundity to them that requires us to read other parts of scripture, but the message is very clear overall in your word. And so uh, we're thankful, Father, that allows us to be able to summarize what you teach. This is not just meant for mystics or for uh, PhDs, but for each and every one of us to be able to grab a hold. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would recognize that you do give us teachers. You do give us pastors, uh, uh, men who over the centuries uh, have put their heads together and build on the wisdom of um, those who came before us so that we could increasingly understand the breadth and the depth of your word. We pray, Lord, that the Westminster Standards would do that for us, would help us uh, to catch up, to get a running start, to have a really good feel for what Scripture teaches. Uh, we still have to apply it. We still have to uh, seek to love you and to obey you uh, in our day-to-day practice. But boy, this is a, a really big step. And so we, we thank you for your gift to the church and and these uh, dead teachers, as it were, but men who continue to teach us nevertheless. And we pray, Lord, that we would profit from their work. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.